The Bible has a lot to say about the subject of justice. Classic texts like Amos 5.24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Well, such passages remind us that this is a basic requirement for God's people in all times and all places. But that prompts a number of questions. What does justice really mean? What does it look like in our world? And what can any of us really do to help bring it to pass? Those are the kinds of questions we've been exploring on Groundwork recently. And today, we'll try to bring the subject to some sort of conclusion. So stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And Scott, as we've been saying repeatedly in these programs, we're talking about the biblical subject of justice. We're riffing in large part on a book called The Justice Calling by uh, Bethany Hanke Huang and Kristen Deedee Johnson. And today we're delighted to welcome back into our studios to talk about the book and the subject and the scriptures, Kristen Johnson. So, Kristen... Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you. And just briefly to recap, uh, we've looked in this series at the link between God's righteousness and justice, and we've seen Bible-wide that is a very tight link. What does it mean for us to live just lives? It means that we live lives of holy righteousness in imitation of, of God. We looked in our second program at themes of lament over injustice, but also about how Sabbath-keeping could restore some justice to our world. In the third program, Kristen, you told us about your and Bethany's work together to co-author this book, and we looked at Jesus as a model of justice when we look at the triple office of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, and now in this final program, we want to talk a little bit more about about these themes, but also probably get, uh, as we go along, a little more practical in terms of how does the church live this out? You know, the fact is that there are horrible things that happen in our world, and we tend to avert our eyes, you know, especially today with social media, internet stories, it's kind of easy to pick and choose, and you can avoid things that are disagreeable or that you disagree with. And yet in your book, you tell many, many stories of dark and awful things. And I, I just wonder if that kind of got to you mm -hmm. at some point, dwelling on that. Mm -hmm. and, and what would you say to someone who says, you know, I just like to think about happier mm -hmm. things? Mm -hmm. It's so important. We, Bethany, my co-author, and I both believe to have actual people to connect these themes to on their own. Words like justice and injustice can seem lofty and abstract, but when you connect them to actual people who are suffering, I think the Spirit uses that to do something within our souls and to remind us that we are all fellow creatures, fellow redeemed children of God, and we need to uh, heed these biblical calls. So there were definitely difficult moments, I would say. They're actually equally difficult moments for me when I watch the news or I read news outlets, it's a dark time and there's a lot of darkness out there. One thing that Bethany really brought to this project through International Justice Mission was that as Christians, we are called to move towards the darkness, that mm. it is not our luxury to stay removed from the world's hardships. But looking at places like John, 
the light shines in the darkness, but the mm. darkness has not understood it. Other places, I think it's first John, the light shines in the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it. Uh, that in the light of Christ, we have to move towards the world's suffering and trust that Christ's light is brighter and trust that in the light of Christ, we can do something to bring justice. That's a great imagery, really, that light and darkness imagery, which runs uh, consistently through the Gospel of John. You, you quoted from chapter 1 there, the light shines in the darkness. Darkness has either neither understood it nor overcome it. Uh, and then in chapter 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. We'll turn from the darkness ourselves, but we'll have the light of life. And so we too can maybe be light shining into these dark places. My friend Dale Bruner, the, the wonderful Bible commentator who uh, re- recently released a huge uh, commentary on John, whenever he reads this passage aloud to teach it, when he reads that verse, he always says, the light shines in the darkness, because he wants people to hear that present tense. It shines. It didn't shine long ago. It's shining now. It shines still in the darkness, and that's what we're called to do. And I like, Kristen, what you said that you and Bethany uh, you know, wanted to emphasize that if you don't get specific, if you don't connect names and people to sex trafficking or human trafficking or poverty, it remains a category, mm-hmm. and that can be caricatured for one thing, but it also stays remote, which is why, and I think we've looked at this uh, in a different connection on Groundwork, but of all the parables Jesus told, only one character ever had a name and that was the poor man Lazarus in mm-hmm. the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I think that was very intentional on Jesus' part. The poor aren't a category, they're, they're individuals. Mm. Uh, and that's so important. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, Dave, there's so much access to information right now. It can feel very overwhelming and hard to know how to actually enter in. And also, you can pick and choose, as you said. Right. So how to be intentional. And, and Bethany talks about this in the book, that for her, it was actually putting her name on an email list. Mm. She didn't realize slavery was still alive. She mm. saw a poster. She said, what do I do? The person said, write your name down. She thought, that's it? She started getting emails into her inbox, stories of actual people suffering. God used that to shape her heart and her prayers and led her directly into this work. But we really believe wherever you are, there is suffering happening around you, sadly, and there are places for you to connect. You don't need to move um, to some foreign place to do that. So figure out how to intersect with actual people and where maybe people in your church are connected, where their passions are, and find a way to enter in through a trusted organization or some people that you know that are maybe already on this journey. I I just think uh, personally, you you know, there's a lot of talk about persecuted Christians throughout Mm. the world, how the church is suffering in many places. When I hear that, I think of names and faces of people that I know in Iran Mm -hmm. just because of circumstances in ministry that have allowed me to meet them and befriend them. So it becomes much more real for me (laughs) than just this abstract number Mm -hmm. of Christians, you know, here or there. And even though I haven't met them because I get the words of hope emails, then I feel a connection and my heart is stirred through the spirit to care more and pray more. Your book talks quite a bit about the international justice mission, and uh, your co-author, Bethany, in fact, works for IJM. Uh, Say a little bit more about that organization. Mm -hmm. So the group was founded by Gary Haugen. He was a lawyer, is a lawyer by training, and he was sent by the UN into Rwanda. He, I believe, was the first to discover the mass grave sites and Mm -hmm. become 
aware of the genocide that had taken place. And one of the questions God raised in his heart through that was, how can we help prevent this from happening again? And what does it look like for Christians to enter into this? So he returned to the States and eventually started this nonprofit in Washington, D.C. They work in countries all over the world. They're especially focused on violent injustice, and they are committed to working locally. So they will work in places where they can join with law enforcement, work through the court systems, work with locals to do investigations and to do rescue and aftercare. So they're very committed to working within the structures of the time and place and also to making sure they have good partnerships through every step of the process. The environmental movement adopted a slogan some years ago, you know, think globally, but act locally. Mm. If you only think globally about pollution, it's overwhelming. But if it's just a matter of recycling your tin cans um, to chip in and help, then you have something concrete to do. And certainly in probably all the places where we live and all the places where the church finds itself, there are issues that, that we can find out about. And I like, too, what you and Dave, Kristen, were saying earlier about, you know, putting a name with it. Some years ago, I was on a study committee for my denomination on the migration of workers, and so we dealt with illegal immigrants. And it's interesting how the conversation shifts. If you just talk about illegal immigrants as a group, people kind of draw some hard lines, and they have certain opinions. But then if it's just about, you know, the the Luis family, who's been in our church for years, well, they're here illegally, but they're different. We want to take good care of them. Well, it's because you have a name and a face with them, and it's not just a category anymore. And that makes all the difference. And of course, Jesus was always personal, right? Mm. He didn't do things, you know, by remote. Uh, he was always touching the lepers, reaching out to the prostitutes, touching the, the outcast uh, in a very, very personal way. And that sets the tone for us. Mm-hmm. One of the things I most appreciated learning through writing this book was a deeper understanding of holiness. Mm-hmm. That technically means set apart. And yet when that word is used, it it almost always is in connection to God drawing near. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is the embodiment of holiness. We'd all say that. And what did Jesus do? He left the purity of heaven and entered into this broken world and every moment of interaction, not every, but almost every interaction, he he touches the leper, he enters into the brokenness, he sits with the prostitutes, he's always drawing near. And we as God's people are called to be holy, to be set apart by our love, justice, and righteousness. But also then to draw near. And to, Maybe. yes, to draw uh, near. So yeah, set apart by drawing near. Yeah. Yes. Well, well, and that was the number one argument Jesus had with the Pharisees in his day. For the Pharisees, being holy meant staying as far away as possible from those who would contaminate you. Hmm. Whereas for Jesus, being holy meant getting as close as you can. And for Jesus, he didn't get contaminated by other people's unholiness. They got con- a good contamination <laughs> yeah. from his holiness. Uh, it went the other way with Jesus. He didn't become unclean by touching those the Pharisees regarded as unclean, they became clean as a result of his touch. We want to think about uh, a few more practical things. Uh, We talked about an organization, about the idea of getting information. There are a lot of great suggestions in the book, but also what can the church do as the church, Uh, not just we as individuals? And that's what we'll talk about next. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. 
Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. Who is God? In the book of John, we learn that Jesus is more than a teacher or prophet. He came to show us who God is. The stories John shares about Jesus help us better comprehend who God is and how he feels about us and reveal the answers we seek for cultivating an abundant life with God. It's not about something we do to try to earn God's favor or make up for our sin. It's about receiving the gifts of forgiveness and new life made possible through Jesus Christ. Join today in August for a series of devotions titled, Who God Is. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And along with our guest, Kristen Johnson, I'm Dave Bast. And we are wrapping up our four-part series on justice. And I want to get really practical. And chapter six in your book, Kristen, your your and Bethany's book, is called Be Sanctified and Sent, Justice and the Church. And sometimes there is a little pushback in the church or some resistance to getting too involved in, in some of these issues. And we can talk a little bit about that. But maybe just talk a little bit about that chapter, uh, Be Sanctified and Sent, you know, any scripture passages or any things that really led you and Bethany to bring into that chapter and to that whole idea, which is kind of where the book lands. Mm -hmm. The overall framework of the book is walking through the biblical story, and this would be kind of where we are now. We We are the church. What is it that we're called to do now in light of this bigger view we've gotten of God's deep passion for justice and righteousness and God's desire for his people to care as deeply? One of the stories we open with is actually about John Newton. Mm. People know him as the writer of Amazing Grace. Great evangelical hero. That's right. And people love and sing Amazing Grace. But what they don't always put together is that he was a human trafficker when Mm. he wrote that song. There are a lot of mythic stories about him, that he had a conversion experience on a slave ship. And sometimes people think he immediately left the slave trade. But it took a long time for him to connect his faith to how he treated slaves into his work. So we talk a little bit about his journey and his eventually coming to see that he needed to fight against slavery and joining and mentoring William Wilberforce and take some, in a way, some discouragement from that, but also some encouragement that God has us on a journey, that the Spirit is sanctifying us. So if you're in a place where you're discouraged about your own involvement or you're discouraged about your church or the world, God is not done. God is still at work and can draw us to care more and more about the things of God. Well, and that story about John Newton, the truth is that was a little bit news to me when I read the book. I, I had sort of also come to believe the, oh, he was converted and instantly changed his every way. Set all um, the slaves free, yeah. turned the, turn the <laughs> yeah. ship around. All yeah. on the same day, but no, it took a long time. And right, there's something discouraging about that, but encouraging. But it's it's not so different from even what we see in the New Testament. I mean, Paul and James and Peter were writing to people where, uh, and you think about Paul's Corinthian letters in particular, or you think of the hard things James said to the people he wrote to, they kind of came up again and again. You guys are still doing this stuff? You're still having trouble with the Lord's Supper there in Corinth? You're you're still showing deferential treatment to the rich when they show up and worship? As James said, it takes a while. The Spirit or, is constantly leading us along. Perhaps most alarming of all, Paul rebuking Peter to his face, mm. as he says in Galatians 2, uh, for not getting it that Gentiles are fully accepted in Christ. It it sometimes takes a long time 
for the gospel to sink in and break through our cultural prejudices mm. and taboos. So you, you write in this chapter, we have to ask what has kept the church from faithfully responding to this call for justice. Mm-hmm. What has? Scott mentioned in a previous program uh, this divide that arose late 1800s, early 1900s around the rise of the social gospel. And that is a big piece of the puzzle within recent American church history. There has been a divide between Christians who care about justice and Christians who care about evangelism or saving souls. We think within the long history of the church and within scripture, that's a false division. Mm-hmm. Um, it rose for some historic reasons. Those who um, were passionate about the social gospel, trying to connect the kingdom of God to actual physical realities. Urbanization was happening. People were suffering. They they believed they connected, and so do we. They tended to de-emphasize the personal sin and the need for conversion. So in response to that, you had other Christians saying, well, we're going to hunker down and focus on saving souls. But even um, historians like George Marsden and others who study the time period leading up to that say what we saw as some evangelicals moved away from justice can be called the great reversal, that the history even of American Christianity was Mm -hmm. leading the way in caring about social reforms, social engagement, and that this was seen as deeply part of the gospel and Mm -hmm. that there were some historic reasons that led to the division, but they're not at the heart of the gospel. Well, and what you said, Kristen, reminds me of two things. Early in the book of Acts, yeah, preaching the gospel, telling people to repent, that's really important, and the apostles were really busy with it, but so was tending to the poor. Mm-hmm. And so they created the office of deacon very early on to say, look, somebody's got to do waiting on tables, right? Somebody has to take care of the widows. And so that that was an impulse earlier. Which is it, a word or deed? And the apostles said, it's both, and we'll create a whole office to do some of the deed part as well. And I'm also reminded, I recently wrote a series of devotions for Words of Hope on Galatians, and Paul reports on this big theological conference they had on that controversy with Peter and so forth. It was like a synod or a general assembly, big theological conversation, but before they finished, they said, oh, and now let's also turn to the ministry to the poor. Mm-hmm. And Paul said, that's exactly what I wanted it. So theology is important, but so is tending to the poor, and that is uh, all through the New Testament. Yeah, we spend a lot of time in the book of Acts in this chapter, and that really shaped our thinking. They are so closely wed, Mm -hmm. and one doesn't have to exclude the other. And that's, I think, some of the sad history that these things have been divided. It is sad, right, And, and it so often does happen, because the honest truth is evangelicals in America especially turned away from this wonderful history in the early 19th century, uh, evangelicals led the anti-slavery movement, uh, abolitionism. Evangelicals led a movement for more rights for women. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's surprising <laughs> to many, but that's what history shows. On the other side of the coin, many of those who engaged in social ministry or the social gospel, and many today who are passionate about justice, don't seem to care very much about evangelism. Mm. So that's that's kind of the tragedy of, of a divided church. Mm-hmm. If you look at biblical righteousness, which I know you've spent time looking at along the way in this series, you can't separate them. Biblical righteousness has to do with being ultimately in right relationship with God and flowing from that living in rightness in all your other relationships. So treating rightly each person with whom you interact. So the restoration with God is essential and that should lead to us caring about how others live. So they're held together all throughout the story of scripture. And you know, those who 
focus primarily on saving souls, we would say, yes, and they're saved into the family of God and saved into the kingdom of God, as Ephesians has it. Um, These go together. We're children of God, and that's being part of this kingdom, and that's part of this world. That's another reason why some of these divisions have arisen is that Christianity has, from the very beginning, struggled with how to hold the spiritual and the physical realms together Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. what does it look like to really care about these both and books like the gospel of john and try to say actually jesus came into the flesh he cares about this world too he reconciled all things including the physical so we as christians can and should care about the things of this earth bethany had a great line in here about um this divide between the spiritual and the physical is like evangelizing someone who's in a brothel and then leaving her there. Mm. You know, we we are called to care mm. both about her wholeness, her shalom, her flourishing, and her soul. Yeah. In my tradition, too, I've often heard, you know, um, those who define the church as institute and the church as organism, and some say, well, the institutional church, you know, a denominational headquarters or whatever, has no business getting mixed up with politics or social programs. That's church's organism that individual believers do. Uh, I myself have never been totally sold on that division. I mean, I, I think that if we as individual believers are supposed to live as Christ's disciples, which would mean advocating for justice and for the poor and for those who are in terrible situations, then certainly when all of those individuals are together, uh, as the corporate church, uh, it should be there as well, part of the the preaching and teaching life of the church, because in both, uh, even if you go with Church's Institute and Church's Organism, it's the same Jesus over both. Mm. And so, right, the neat and fast separations and distinctions here maybe don't work. Mm-hmm. I think that was another piece that I learned a lot about was that discipleship and mission don't need to be separated. You don't need your sort of mission committee and then your discipleship arm of the church. That our call as disciples is to live as the people of God, and God has always wanted his people from Genesis onward to seek justice and righteousness, mm-hmm. and to, and that's the manifestation of our love. So. This has to be a part of each of our lives in some way, and each of our churches as well. One of the things that I found kind of striking was the story you told in the book about what would Jesus do, the Mm. old WWJD (laughs) bracelet, how you sort of appreciated that, but then move beyond it to something uh, a little richer and fuller. Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. So that was a big movement when I was in youth group and we got the bracelets and we actually read In His Steps, which was the book that it came from. And for a while it seemed helpful, but I think the, I mentioned the last program way back when I first started thinking about justice, reading the book of Isaiah, I got this sense from that book that God's love for justice and righteousness flows from God himself that it's part of his character, and therefore it's supposed to be part of what we care about as well. And that, to me, is a richer picture of why we care than simply looking at Jesus as a model. We can't do it. You know, the the obstacles are too great. The darkness, though Christ overcomes it, is still there. On our own, we can't do it. And having an example won't get us very far. We actually need to be adopted into God's family, receive the justice and righteousness of God, and then we can do it. So in other words, we're not just seeking it. We actually have been given the gift of righteousness in Christ, and we need that to be able to live seeking righteousness and justice in this world. And and that's exactly Paul's point in the letter to the Galatians at the very end in Galatians 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary.
weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Yeah. So yeah, do good we, to we, all. we take care of the church, but we do good to all people as we have opportunity. And I think one of the things, um, Kristen, that you and Bethany bring out in the book is that we do have opportunity. It's all around us. There is so much suffering, so much hurt, so many examples of modern day equivalent of the, of the widow, the orphan, the stranger. And if we look for those opportunities, we'll see them and we will not grow weary in doing good. The Justice Calling by Bethany Hanky Huang and Kristen Deedy Johnson. And thanks, Kristen, for joining us on Groundwork. And thank you, too, for joining this conversation. We're your hosts, Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose. We'd like to know how we could help you continue digging deeper into Scripture. So visit groundworkonline.com and tell us. Groundwork is a joint production by Reframe Media and Words of Hope. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is Mark Brent. Our studio relations manager is Christy Prinz. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob. Our executive producer, Stephen Koster. 